It is the impractical things in this tumultuous hellscape of a world that matter most. A book, a name, chicken soup. They help us remember that even in our darkest hour, life is still to be savored. They help us remember that even in our darkest hour, we can still embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time, the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling, and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 134 of Embrace the Void, where nothing is fucked, dude. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is more aptly timed than a pandemic response team. Since we don't have one of those in this country, here's someone just as great. My guest this week is Phil Torres, an expert on existential risks, who is soon going to be starting a PhD in philosophy of science at Leibniz University in Hanover, assuming any of those things still exist at this point, you know, what, a couple of weeks from now? How you doing, Phil? Would you like to say hi to the void? Uh, very nice to be here. Yeah. Uh, how's it going? <laughs> Good. Mm-hmm. I think we're all having a real fun time right now, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Personally, it's the exact opposite for me, but yeah, I respect if if you're enjoying this. <laughs> so you're either going to be in Germany soon, starting a PhD, or trapped in a slowly collapsing American empire. Is that pretty much the situation, my friend? That is, uh, that's an accurate description. Uh, yeah, buddy. I might end up stranded here. There's, you know, I'm supposed to fly over uh, over to Germany um, in just a few days. But flights are being canceled. So, yeah, there's a good chance, uh, you know, listeners um, will be on the other side of those decisions and could very well end up, uh, you know, stuck in uh, over here in North America uh, amidst, a, you know, a civilizational collapse uh, event. <laughs> yeah, which we'll is say. good. That's where we would want our existential risks experts to be um, trapped, not at the places where they can study how to exactly. use technology to avoid yep. pandemics. <laughs> oh, good. This is all going so great. No, I'm really happy to have you on here. I feel like this couldn't have been a more timely moment for us to finally be able to get you on the show. Um, mm-hmm. It's great to so, be here. Yep. Yeah. Um, so before we actually talk about the existential horror side of things, do you want to let folks know a little bit about kind of your background, how you self-identify on whatever axes you feel like are important in this particular moment? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my background is in philosophy and neuroscience. Um, but the past 10 years or so, I've really focused my scholarly attention on existential risks, uh, which you know includes uh, human extinction, uh, as well as you know some sort of global uh, catastrophic scenarios like civilizational collapse that could be survivable um, 
And so, yeah, I've, I've published a bunch of uh, papers in like academic journals on these topics and a few books, uh, like the last book was was on, it was, it was sort of an introductory text to existential risk studies, which is this emerging, you know, still quite nascent field that uh, has has formed over the past you know decade and a half, um, mm-hmm. following a 2002 paper by an Oxford philosopher named Nick Bostrom. So mm-hmm. yeah, this is, you know, some people in the field like to joke that there is a kind of job security when you focus <laughs> on existential risk because things, you know, all indications are uh, that things are not really getting better. And right now they're probably unprecedentedly bad in, in various respects. You know, the probability of uh, an existential catastrophe of some sort seems to be higher today than probably ever before in our 300,000 year history mm-hmm. uh, roaming uh, the lonely planet. Right. So uh, you're maybe on, the one sort extent. of on the anti-Pinker side of this particular kind of assessment? Well, so my view actually is that th- there are some problems with Pinker's um, historical analysis. Mm-hmm. Like in particular, I, th- I think his um, understanding of Paleolithic violence is quite bad. And there are a number of uh, anthropologists and paleoanthropologists who have written some pretty harsh critiques of uh, aspects of better angels of our nature. There's an article uh, titled Pinker's List by an anthropologist that's quite good and mm-hmm. sort of catalogs, you know, a number of ways that Pinker gets the data wrong. But it does seem like he's onto something, you know, the past couple centuries, particularly since the 1950s, mm-hmm. there does seem to be a decline of violence and what could plausibly be referred to as moral progress. You know, mm-hmm. all the rights revolutions, the um, gay rights, animal rights, uh, you know, women's suffrage, and then second wave feminism, third wave feminism, and so on. So there did seem to be um, some directional change towards uh, human betterment. And that I applaud. But the problem is that th- this is just one cluster mm-hmm. of uh, one cluster of scenario of, you know, trends that and he really doesn't, uh, he's, he really just sort of ignores um, this other cluster of trends, which has to do with existential risk and mm-hmm. global catastrophic risks. Um, so I think I think it's an incomplete picture, yeah. and I think when you get a complete picture, you have it's it's just radically um, ambivalent. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. things are getting better, but also things are getting um, probably worse in many ways. So, yeah, I think it makes sense. And I want to get your your sort of clear definition of existential risk here in a second. But I also just first want to check in. So, what ethical positions do you feel like you personally put stock in when you're making your assessments about these kinds of issues? Are you more on the consequentialist, non-consequentialist, some blend of these kinds of views? Yeah, so I agree with John Rawls, who famously said that there's there's no um, ethical position that is uh, remotely defensible, that doesn't take consequences into account, mm-hmm. uh, at least to some extent. Um, and, you know, for, for quite a while, I was influenced by the dominant uh, um, uh, ethical perspective within the field of existential risk studies, which is utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, a kind of totalistic, a totalist utilitarianism where, uh, according to which what matters is the you know absolute quantity of intrinsic value in right. the universe. We, we've sometimes called that the aggregationist utilitarian yeah. approach. Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 right. Are, right. So I, I, my, um, I mean, there, there is some terminological uh, flexibility mm-hmm. for sure. So I typically call that total utilitarianism, but it's th- this is just a semantic issue, um, mm-hmm. and I'm happy to adopt <laughs> your term. <laughs> oh, I was just I was just cluing, cluing in folks who might want to uh, be sure, following sure, along sure. and right want to understand where we use these terms. Before we talked about the problems, some of the problems with the aggregationist approach over on philosophers in space when we did um, the ones who walk away from Omalas. 
So ah, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, Great. So, so I know. So I was, I was pretty sympathetic with with that uh, ethical theory for a while, but then, you know, maybe. A year ago, I started doing some serious research uh, in hopes of writing a book, which I'm um, about 40,000 words into, on the ethics of uh, human extinction in particular, which I'm, I'm sort of mm-hmm. calling um, existential ethics. Oh, great. And it's, so that's sort of an umbrella term that, that you know, encompasses to some extent like environmental ethics, uh, maybe even aspects of like, you know, computer ethics and, and so on. But mm-hmm. but since focusing, since sort of thinking, uh, hopefully a bit more clearly and hopefully a bit more deeply about these issues, I have increasingly found the utilitarian approach to be inadequate in some some pretty serious ways. So these days, I'm much more. I find much more appealing a virtue ethical approach. Mm. Ah, good. Than, Everyone comes to virtue ethics eventually. I feel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that the case? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I think yeah. I think everyone starts off pulling in one direction and then moves back towards a kind of pluralism eventually when they realize that no view is fully satisfactory and that pluralism ends up looking kind of virtue theory dominant a lot of the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I think that that um, uh, captures to some extent the the trajectory of my uh, uh, you know intellectual development on on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, where I I do pluralism does appeal to me. Um, you know, virtue ethics can accommodate a kind of a particularism uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to generalism. You know, most uh, um, ethical theories like deontology, um, you know, Kantianism, consequentialism, uh, contractualism, and so on. Um, these tend to emphasize uh, general rules, so they're generalist. Right. Whereas virtue ethics says, you know, there, there just aren't any. You know, Aristotle, uh, you know, argued that. There just are no general rules. Actually, he made one or two exceptions for like murder right, and it's adultery. A little, it's a little more, but, but you're right that like yeah. the goal, like the general rule is learn to be a really good thinker about cases because you're mostly going to be dealing with cases. Yeah, exactly. Develop practical wisdom for Nisus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, and through moral education and then practice, um, you, you know, the, the aim ultimately, I mean, there are some uh, philosophers like Rosalind Hursthouse have mm-hmm. proposed um, what they call V-rules. But right. these are, so, you know, th- there's kind of a weak version of particularism, which says it's not the case that there are um, uh, no rules at all. It's just the rules are very context-specific, right. um, you know, sensitive to the particular circumstances. So, you know, the, these, uh, th- maybe the, the most general rule is act in a way uh, that, uh, act, you know, in a particular situation, act the way that a, um genuinely virtuous person would characteristically act in the same uh, circumstances. So what does that mean exactly? Well, you know, there's a lot to to say on that. You can't can't explain it because it's a particularist answer. The answer is it it depends on the situations. Yeah, it's a bit more heuristic than um, Mm -hmm. algorithmic. Okay, so so fair enough. Yeah. So you're so you're not on the you're not quite in the aggregationist utilitarian world anymore. You're a bit fuzzy, like many of us here, um, which I think is good to. And so let me lay down one more marker, and then we can get to existential sure. risk here. Mm-hmm. Are you do you self identify as an antinatalist? And if so, um, what kind of arguments drive your thinking on that particular question? <laughs> right. Um, well, there are uh, to just to, to start kind of in reverse order. I mean, there are a number of pretty good arguments. There are deontological arguments mm-hmm. uh, that have been outlined in the literature. The most famous, obviously, is David Benatar's more utilitarian view, right. which is based on the harm-benefit uh, asymmetry. So, 
which is basically actually, for folks who aren't familiar that you can't consent to being born and that's a problem yeah and and so yeah but and part of the his that idea in particular is is you know when you come into existence you there is you're both benefited uh, and harmed because right. life is full of benefits and harms but if you don't come into existence um you are not benefited but you're neither harmed the thing is that being benefited is good being harmed is bad uh not being benefited is uh not bad but not being harmed is good so basically you have a good bad situation which is existence versus a good not bad situation which is non-existence and that is always going to be better the latter is always going to be better <laughs> than the yeah. former that's, that's what's one way to cash out the deontological argument another one would be um, you know, it's okay to give people goods without their consent, but it's not okay to cause them harms without their consent. And there's no way to acquire consent, and you're necessarily causing harm. So, right, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, so, yeah. So there's that, and then sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. That's fine. Yeah. So, you know, Benatar's argument is um, it tends to be utilitarian, but you're totally right that there are all these other, you know, arguments that seem so in in aggregate. If you don't mind me using that word. Um, <laughs> I, I do find the uh, those the the um, you know totality of evidence in the form of argumentation to be fairly convincing. Myself, okay. I, I I I'm not uh, too zealous about this conclusion because there are you know plenty of uh, people who are uh, deeply thoughtful and knowledgeable about these issues who disagree. Um, so you know, th there's there's a there's a risk whenever you uh, um, you know advocate for a view like antinatalism to come across as uh, mm -hmm. judgy. You know, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I did, that's that's not uh, uh, that's maybe problematic in certain ways, but nonetheless, yeah, my view is that it it probably is unethical uh, in principle to procreate, but also there, there's you know an additional practical argument which is just. That you know, imagine a world uh, mm -hmm. like ours, but it, but one that is is significantly better in certain uncontroversial senses. Like there's less, mm -hmm. you know, war. There's you know, our politics are better. We're not run by someone like Donald Trump. Um, right, we've, we've know, fixed like climate change. Uh -huh. We've we're dealing with climate change. Um, you know, go government officials are competent to deal with like pandemics and stuff like that. Uh, I would be I would be much more inclined to uh, uh, approve of um, creating new human beings in this world, but the oh, world, world we live in okay. is it's just it's just saturated with you know fatuity and and stupidity and suffering and or, or much of which is avoidable, mm -hmm. but nonetheless it adds a, an extra sort of layer of reason as far as I'm concerned for um, for not having kids. And, and you don't feel compelled to have kids as a way to fix the problem by raising um, super geniuses who will um, step up and do the job? No, I tend to find the, I mean, you know, there's questions about the heritability of, of intelligence. Fair um, enough. I mean, that's, that could be a whole uh, conversation. And I tend to find, I mean, I've known lots of people who have had kids uh, for the express reason of trying to increase the average IQ of a population. And it, that always just struck me as as pretty um pretty cocky <laughs> are we both thinking of jeffrey epstein right now or is it just me no it might be just you i, I didn't know oh yeah is, that, is was that... How that was the whole point of his um 
sex slave plan besides you know having oh, sex slaves God. was to try to sow his high genetic seed amongst as many people as possible oh dear god yeah there's well, always a yeah. eugenics component man there's always there's always a little eugenics in there yeah 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 um, okay so, so yeah, that's yeah. that sorry that's just mortifying to hear yeah <laughs> but I, I, unsurprising. Um, <laughs> there's always a little bit of void just to splash in yeah <laughs> um, so, so fair enough so you're a weak antinatalist broadly speaking um which totally totally get just wanted to get that out there since i think it goes along with a lot of the the topics that we'll try to get into here so so now yeah. let's talk about the main central point here which is what is an existential risk and i guess what are the top five let's say existential risks that you think exist out there in the world yeah um so um there, there are a number of definitions of existential risk in the literature probably the most influential that is uh, probably the most canonical was given by Nick Bostrom, who I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. in a 2002 paper that was published in what was originally called the Journal of Transhumanism. Mm -hmm. um, and so he, his definition was existential risk is one where the um, adverse uh, effects would, uh, it's, you know, it's some event that would either result in human extinction or a permanent and drastic uh, reduction in our uh, capacity for desirable future development. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it's, this is a concept that, uh, subsumes, uh, human extinction, which is the termination, uh, you know, irreversible termina termination of our evolutionary lineage or various survivable scenarios that would prevent us from continuing to develop technology and improve life, uh, uh, you know, indefinitely into the future. Is there like a textbook sort of example of those sorts of things that you think of when you're, you know, like we don't all die off, but there's a high likelihood that whoever's left over can't rebuild civilization in a functional way? Yeah. So there, there, uh, there's a subtype of uh, existential risk, which is permanent co collapse. So, you know, civilization could, uh, could uh, um, you know, could crumble around the, the world and the few remaining survivors you know, j just don't have, mm -hmm. uh, you know, p you know, if, if civilization were to collapse in, you know, 50 years, uh, maybe all of the, at that point, all of the um, energy in the form of, uh, you know, fossilized uh, plant matter mm -hmm. will be used up. So mm -hmm. perhaps you need that, that store of energy to, um, to bring about industrialization. So consequently, mm -hmm. people in that situation may be uh, prevented from sort of following the same trajectory of, um, you know, of development that we followed throughout history to get to this level of, you know, our current level of, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of, of well-being and you know our, our current life ways. So that's it's possible, but you know, a lot of people have thought that that if civilization were to collapse, that it probably would not be um, irreversible. Mm -hmm. uh, others have talked about you know there could be like recurrent collapse. Maybe right. you know people don't learn. I mean, if history shows one thing, is that people don't <laughs> don't learn the lessons of the past. I mean, we're, you know, we're in the middle of this global pandemic, and a major, you know, uh, cultural phenomenon in the past uh, decade has been the anti-vaxxer movement. Right. And these individuals just do not understand how dangerous, how many people, you know, huge percentages of the global population have died as a result of, you know, major pandemics in the past. Would you so qualify well, the anti-vaxxer movement as an existential risk? Um, probably not. But they're let's say they're not helping. <laughs> Is that just because uh, they're not widespread enough? Like, if it became a widespread view, would it become an existential risk? 
Potentially, um, with lots of qualifications. Okay. Uh, but without a doubt, I mean, their sort of uh, brand of anti-science uh, ideology is is potentially quite dangerous. Fair so, enough. Okay. So yeah. we got a, we got, I think we got a fairly decent definition there. So what are your what are the ones on your short list of things that keep you up at night? Yeah. Um, well, geez, where to start? Uh, <laughs> There's so many to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's worth noting that I mean. Th- you know, most of the most significant risks facing us today are anthropogenic in nature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the sixth mass extinction event, perhaps that was initiated way back in the uh, Paleolithic with the uh, megafauna die out um, as a result of the uh, the hunting hypothesis uh, or um, as a result of what the hunting hypothesis uh, gestures at, which is, you know, overhunting. And we like but, killing anything that might hurt us. Yeah. But really, since uh, industrialization and really, you know, the last, you know, maybe seven decades, the rate of global biodiversity loss has accelerated, you know, hugely. Mm-hmm. So, like from 1970 to uh, 2012, the global population of wild vertebrates declined by um, 59 percent or 60 percent. Uh, yeah. Which is, yeah, it's it's really staggering. You know, listeners can go and extrapolate that into the future. It's very dire. Um, so anyways, my point is that that some of these risks uh, go back, you know, some of these anthropogenic risks go back um, mm-hmm. quite quite a way. You know, 1830s was when uh, the climate, global climate started to change a bit as a result of um, industrial activity. But the 1945 to 1954 is really when... Uh, um, things changed very dramatically with the invention of, uh, you know, the atomic bomb and thermonuclear weapons. Um, mm. So, yes, and since then there has just kind of been this explosion of either new actual scenarios, like the the uh, technological capability mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, to, to synthesize a designer pathogen uh, mm-hmm. that spreads around the globe and is, you know, is, is unnaturally transmissible and lethal because there tends to be this inverse relationship in nature designer uh, between this sounds like way better branding than i feel like we want to put on this thing that that sounds really <laughs> really trendy yeah yeah designer paths that's very true it's yeah, it like a little pathogen cool, holding not. a gucci bag it's yeah it's not good yeah. <laughs> that's awesome um yeah and then there you know there are these emerging scenarios that are are and various scenarios that are sort of uh, speculative right now, like involving mm-hmm. you know super intelligent uh, machines or uh, molecular nanotechnology. Uh, so, anyways, yeah, the number has the number of plausible, of scientifically credible um, human extinction or existential uh, risk scenarios has really ballooned um, immensely. You know, particularly since like in the middle Fair of the last enough. century. Um, so there's there are a lot to to choose from, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are different ways to, to the different ways to, to classify them in terms of their priority, uh, in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, how, how urgent addressing them is. So like, you know, climate change is an ongoing, you know, it's kind of a, a slow motion uh, disaster. And it seems like the window for meaningful activity uh, to, you know, significantly curb, to, to obviate, you know, the worst potential outcomes is closing rapidly. It's really the next, you know, decade mm-hmm. or so. And then we, you know, it, and then in the absence of some magical new technology, 
you know, some uh, uh, highly effective carbon removal uh, technology that's affordable and, you know, we can uh, use it all around the world, then we're going to be locked into a really, really bad situation for, uh, as one paper put it, for longer, a longer period of time than civilization has so far existed. Okay. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of things there, it seems like. Um, and I want to I dive into a bunch of these. Um, yeah. first, first of all, I just want to note, you so far haven't mentioned either postmodern intersectionality or leftist incivility on your list of existential crises. And I'm curious, do you feel like the abandoning of the objective truth at the academic level is not a serious upstream risk for all these uh, social problems that we're facing? Huh. Um, well, so I, I, I'm not quite sure what you mean by intersectionality, because it's I, it seems to have a lot. I mean, it, it does have a lot of different uses, uh, you know, uh, among like, you know, academics versus uh, critics and so on. Um, so I, sometimes I, I would need, I, I would need clarification on what, yeah, this, what this is like 50% a troll question. Um, but yeah. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me put it in not trolling terms, which is to okay. say when we're assessing existential risks, a lot yeah. of, um, I think our energy or thought goes into assessing the downstream practical problems, you know, the creation yeah. of an AI, the, the giant asteroid, et cetera. Do yeah. we need to, so someone will argue maybe, do we need to be focusing more of our energy on upstream cultural issues like the abandoning of um, science or something like that? That like the real existential threat is anti-scientism more broadly rather than any one of these specific problems? Yeah. So I, so my impression, and I'm, I'm more than happy to, um, if, you, if you disagree about any of this, uh, um, more than happy to uh, discuss it more. But my sense is the you know, a kind of anti-science um, uh, ideology or, you know, zeitgeist uh, is, is, is pretty prominent right now among the political right mm -hmm. in, in the country. And that I worry about greatly because it's, it's a huge voting block that, you know, is determining who ends, obviously ends up in steering the ship and they're, you know, voting for people who don't believe in just basic scientific uh, truths in academia, I don't see it that much, and I uh, uh, I don't see this trend uh, very uh, to be very. In, I don't see it as very influential, mm -hmm. um, and I feel like a lot of the criticism is pretty misguided. And frankly, a, uh, my sense, at least, is a, a lot of the critics um, themselves are like you know pretty guilty of picking and choosing, and you know there's a lot of hypocrisy. And you know, kind of double speak um, going around. So, I, but I do worry in general. I mean, you know, pe people are subject to all sorts of cognitive biases, and um, mm -hmm. you know, and I uh, that all of those biases, you know, sort of distort uh, a clear view of. Um, of you know reality yeah i certainly you know i'm not i'm not serious in my concern about um academic lefties for the most part um but yeah. I, I did want to throw that out there for fairness sake um yeah does, I, I, yeah no no i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. okay yeah no, my, my yeah my strong sense is you know so at the risk of like bringing up uh um people by name but like you know sam harris is a, a good example Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's he's such a, a vocal critic of of quote unquote the left as if there's some monolith, you know, um, that holds you know certain progressive views as well as intersectionality. But m oftentimes, uh, when I listen to him talk about these topics, I am struck by how 
uninformed he is. And mm-hmm. I've worried a lot that that he has been a source of tremendous misinformation because a lot of the, the most um, vociferous critics of like intersectionality who tend to be kind of white men get a lot of their information from mm-hmm. other white men who haven't actually studied these issues. So from my perspective, at least, that is a kind of anti-intellectualism <laughs> that mm-hmm. is not helpful. <laughs> and right. there are, without a doubt, there are legitimate... Um, criticisms uh, uh to level at uh at you know certain uh fields uh within academia like gender studies and and mm-hmm. whatever but uh but all the, you know sophisticated critiques are just not being leveled and you know postmodernism is talked about a lot by like jordan peterson and others but that is a, you know that's really about as popular in academia as verificationism is in philosophy that was oh, a view shot at liam Byrne. no i'm just kidding uh, so like i mean it's just a view that you know a lot of recent work in uh, like english departments over the past few decades has been in response uh mm-hmm. in critical response to postmodernism because it's just not cool anymore <laughs> you know it's it's it, its flaws have been kind of revealed and nobody wants to be i mean i know people who have literally um i've known lots of people in english departments um who have said yeah if i tried to publish a paper where i had adopted some postmodern uh, perspective um that it would get rejected <laughs> like right away <laughs> you know Fair enough. so yeah so i don't know i i i have um it's it's sometimes it's frustrating uh, watching the how, how this the narrative uh, unfolds because it seems like there's just a lot of misinformation about these issues. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So speaking of misinformation, um, do you think <laughs> the coronavirus is an existential risk? Do you? And if not, what would sort of an illness have to? What would be the features of an illness that would really freak you out? Yeah, I don't think um, the coronavirus or this particular coronavirus. Mm-hmm is an existential risk. It, 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 you know, th- there are possible scenarios that would result in some pretty widespread societal devastation. But probably, you know, we're, we're going to survive this, um, even if uh, there are huge numbers of casualties, which I, I obviously hope that there aren't. Um, I mean, it seems like its, it's mortality rate is, uh, is almost certainly higher than the, the seasonal flu. Mm-hmm. That's one of many reasons why it's, we should be much more concerned about COVID-19 than uh, the flu. Uh, but also it seems like the, the the fatality rate is much lower than like the Spanish flu. You know, so that was an outbreak in 1918, lasted to 1920, and, um, you know, resulted in, you know, something like 27% of the global population was infected and 50 million deaths. It was It was pretty devastating. And it probably had a, a fatality rate of like six to eight or maybe 10%. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes you, you find it listed as uh, like two, two or 3%, but, but that is almost certainly a false number. And pr- it's probably confusing the mortality rate with the fatality rate. Uh, mortality rate is just the total number of people who have died worldwide from, mm-hmm. uh, uh, from this pr- particular germ, as opposed to the number of people who are infected and then die. So that rate, the fatality rate is probably much higher, uh, you know, around maybe 10%. So it's, it seems like right now, given that testing is not so widespread, um, there probably are, uh, you know, fairly, a a much larger number of people who have been infected with the coronavirus, but who are not included in the data set 
Mm -hmm. um, so as a result of that, it seems like the, the fatality rate is going to be a bit lower. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, there, there are things we don't know, like, you know, is this going to be a seasonal thing? Could it just last, you know, for the next two years? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what's going to happen to global trade and, you know, so, I mean, there could really be very, very severe, uh, consequences. So in that sense, I'm very worried about it. And also, I mean, there is a systematicity to existential risk where, you know, one threat, there could be cascading effects, sure. you know, one threat increases the likelihood of another threat. So, you know, right now, uh, China is accusing the U.S. Uh, US army of having, um, synthesized the, the COVID-19, uh, the, the coronavirus that's causing COVID-19. Well, that's good because we were accusing them of having synthesized it to use on Hong Kong. So I feel it's only right. fair, right? Exactly right. So this is the kind of uh, war of words right. that who knows, it could escalate. We have a very cantankerous and uh, a capricious leader in the Oval Office. So who knows how this could it could escalate moving forward and therefore make uh you know some kind of military um a conflict more probable fair enough so, yeah. so okay so let's talk about a kind of existential risk that is a little bit more perhaps not totally but a little bit more predictable in terms of the slow grinding horror which is the climate change stuff where it seems like mm -hmm. you pretty strongly think that it's an existential risk um so i'm curious how far your policy conclusions go on this front in terms of what technology you're interested in employing or what um, cultural or legal structures you're willing to um, enact or put in place to try to address this issue? Where's, where do you stand on those fronts? Yeah, well, I definitely think it's a clear and present danger. Uh, I think it's probably unlikely that it's going to result in the population dwindling to zero. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, uh, uh, it, it seems very, you know, th there's a there's a chance, uh, and there's a fair amount of uncertainty about this as well um, within, uh, you know, among climatologists. But there's a chance that you know we could cross some kind of critical threshold in terms of climate stability that initiates a runaway greenhouse effect. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's the classic example, uh, as you probably know, is Venus, where something similar happened involving the greenhouse gas of water vapor rather than carbon dioxide. But, you know, temperatures, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like 700 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface of the planet. Right. Um, not great. So really, yeah, not not comfortable. <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, so if something like that happened, then it seems like extinction is inevitable mm -hmm. uh, for, for obvious reasons. The alternative uh, you know, would be or, that we all just move away from the equators and people get have lo lower quality of life, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if the surface temper temperature gets to that level, uh, maybe, you know, there's subterranean bunkers that we could live in. Maybe we could venture off to, you know, uh, to Mars or some other, ex some exoplanet. Mm -hmm. But so maybe there are ways <laughs> to survive, but none of that, nobody should be looking forward to, <laughs> to that future. Um, yeah. so, but nonetheless, I do think climate change is, is absolutely catastrophic. It's happening right now. Um, it's intertwined with global biodiversity loss and the beginning of really the, the ramping up of the six mass extinction event, mm -hmm. which could have, um, you know, itself really devastating consequences. There was a 2012 article that was published, um, uh, in science or nature. I can't remember which, uh, but they were basically saying that there, you know, 
there's evidence, there's reason for thinking that we could be on the cusp of a catastrophic, irreversible, and sudden, which means maybe uh, um, on a decadal timescale, you know, one right. or two decades, uh, collapse of the global ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So in a very short amount of time, within a single individual's lifetime, uh, the in, you know the global ecosystem just just falls apart, um, and that could could you know ha- as they put it in the paper, I mean that could have uh, really severe consequences for the underpinnings of you know our contemporary modern civilization. Right, and it so, seems like the biodiversity problem is a harder one to get a handle on than even other parts of the climate change problem. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, you, know, well, you, you know, we could, we could use geoengineering to dim the sky in a way that is probably more predictably effective than like trying to introduce new species back into ecosystems or trying to reestablish the level of biodiversity that we've lost. Yeah, I, I think that's totally right. I mean, there, there is, uh, you know, this uh, theoretical possibility of de-extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's synthetic biologists uh, um, like George Church at, at Harvard who are you know, talking about bringing back like the carrier pigeon, um, the woolly mammoth, maybe the Neanderthal, mm-hmm. um, and you know, but but that that seems, um, you know, as some critics have put it, the fact is that the you know ecosystems are changing so significantly that bringing back you know one or two species is not going to is not going to that's not workable in, in right. the long run. It seems like a drop um, in the bucket. It really is. Uh, I mean, sp- speaking of drop of drop in the bucket, you know, there was a, a t- 2006 uh, study that extrapolated um, current, uh, you know, of sort of business as usual mm-hmm. rates of, uh, of fishing, mm-hmm. and determined that in 2048 the oceans will be virtually emptied of uh, wild caught seafood. Jeez. So it's you know it's not what year is it now? It's it's not that far. Twenty <laughs> twenty know? years. Yeah. <laughs> 20, 23 so, years yeah it's pretty pretty it's or 28 it's, right? yeah 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 it, it's it's pretty wild i mean this this is within our lifetimes um mm-hmm. and so yeah i i do think that, that these um risks uh yeah probably won't bring about human extinction but they are going to cause I think it was maybe the most recent IPCC uh, reports um, mm-hmm. used the term untold suffering. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I might be wrong about the, the calculable numbers of sufferings. Yes. Yeah. Um, just tr- profound, uh, totally unprecedented. I mean, there was a, I, I'm, I'm remembering a um, really good Washington post article from uh, just, I don't know, last year. And the headline was something like, the headlines of, you know, within a decade will be nothing like the headlines today. And that's so true. There's going to be headlines as a result of climate change. And again, unless there's some magical new technology um, that, uh, you know, prevents, you know, the most catastrophic effects, you know, as a result of reaching 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius warming above pre-industrial levels, um, mm-hmm. the headlines are going to read like, you know, a billion dead. Like imagine mm-hmm. reading right. that headline. Um, it's horrifying. So if if you're a utilitarian, what really matters to you is keeping the human species alive. Because as long as you know we persist to some extent, then we can still fill our future light cone with you know astronomical amounts of value. But if you're not a utilitarian, and my own uh, view is that you 
you shouldn't be, but <laughs> people mm-hmm. disagree. Um, it's that, you know, a headline that says 1 billion deaths, that is all you need to know to, to absolutely prioritize that. Um, yeah, that it, it's, it's, uh, it's very worrisome. Fair enough. And I, yeah. And I do think there, there could be, you know, you had mentioned like, uh, you know, technologies to mitigate, uh, climate change. I mean, it could very well be the case that, you know, something like stratospheric geoengineering, uh, mm-hmm. does actually effectively and perhaps safely prevent some very bad, uh, outcome from, uh, obtaining, but, but the, these are, it's, it's, it should be unsettling that we're mm-hmm. at a point where we've, you know, the governments, um, and or your political leaders have failed us to such an extent that scientists and reputable, uh, researchers are taking seriously the possibility of peppering the stratosphere with these sulfate aerosols to try to block out um incoming light to, to result right. in you know global global dimming as they call it and therefore uh to mitigate the um effects of climate change you know this you, is just not where we want to be do you but, feel roughly the same way about the space travel solution that people sometimes bring forward that like i'm, I'm fairly pessimistic about the odds of getting off planet and i'm curious what your thoughts are on that front I'm very pessimistic as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's there are good arguments uh, drawing from um, they're, they're good sort of you know multidisciplinary uh, multidiscipline based arguments that, that that draw from like evolutionary biology, from like transhumanism, futurism, as well as international uh, relations theory mm-hmm. that suggest. Uh, that space colonization would probably just be a disaster. Right. So one idea is like, you know, as you venture out into space, there's going to be this um, phylogenetic diversification uh, process. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, um, conditions within... pressures, right? Completely new selection pressures. pressures. Life on Mars is going to be... The, the, the conditions on Mars are so radically different than on Earth. There's probably... Um, if if there's if there isn't uh, you know directed uh, evolution as a result of cyborgization and you know uh, human enhancement and stuff like that, then there's just going to be you know Darwinian you know natural selection of uh, traits that are better fitted to this particular selected environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to get just kind of radical diversification, and as you get uh, as this occur- you know it's not just biological, but you're going to get diversification of ideologies of you know different political systems different uh um worldviews different religions um yeah and the so sci- on the sci-fi series the expanse is really good on this subject actually oh it is okay cool, cool yeah, cool. yeah I, i'm not familiar of, with it they do a good job of being smart on how it would affect both bodies and minds for people out there in the belt they get as far as the asteroid belt um, ah interesting yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so so yeah, so you're, so you're not not super uh, optimistic on that front. Um, well, I just worry that you know once you have radical diversity, mm-hmm. um, th- one of the mechanisms that can ensure peace is trust. But when you have radical diversity, you know, imagine um, emotional repertoires that uh, are really quite different, or cognitive architectures that make it impossible for one group of intelligent beings to understand the motives. Mm-hmm. intentions and so on of another group that is a problem so once once you have a breakdown of trust 
then you know international relations theory um you, you have that tends that conduces to what they call um security dilemma right. uh according to so-called spiral theory you know so one you know in order to uh, ensure your safety uh, in case of a uh, you know first strike from the other uh, group you build up defensive resources but invariably those are perceived by the other group at least to some extent as um a threat you know they could you know a lot of those technologies are dual use you know maybe they could be used to uh, initiate a preemptive attack on the other group so then they build up their defenses and then you get this you know this reinforcing you know uh feedback effect that uh you know of of increasing militarization that could mm-hmm. very well uh culminate in conflict and when you think about you know as we move from the solar you know from earth to mars and then to you know um the, the galilean moons around jupiter and and beyond that you just you get this you know multipolar situation which is highly unstable and it's really hard to see how there <laughs> how there could be mechanisms robust mechanisms of reliable peace between all of these different groups of individuals all of these different post humans out there um so that worries me and that i know this this is a highly you know theoretical argument uh but it it it, it's to to date you know i published a paper on this and to date i've not uh heard anybody provide uh any good counter arguments for it fair enough so i mean i think there are a lot of good problems out there it seems like that are sort of we're, we're hurtling towards these kinds of ways without having good um plans for how we're going to address all of the the knockdown all the side effects and such like that yeah i think you're, you're totally right about that and I, I actually wrote in the paper that you know we're in a rare uh, moment here uh you know there, there's some i think nasa and uh spacex they're you know hoping to uh, get p- human beings on Mars within like ten years. I mean, th- this will happen within our lifetime, unless unless an existential catastrophe occurs. Of course, seems, seems so know? unlikely they're going to get there in ten years. I just feel like that's so optimistic. Yeah, yeah. well, I would. So I, I'm totally sympathetic with that reaction, but maybe it's worth remembering that um, the Apollo program. How long was that? I, I'm not remembering exactly off the top of my head. I don't remember, but. It, it didn't take them that long to get people. You know, we didn't. We went from sure. Having, if, we put a, if we put enough effort into these things, in theory, they could go quickly. It just seems yeah. like we're, we're not in any direction moving towards putting enough effort into any of these things. And yeah, then, and probably yeah. because there's so many of them, right? Like, how do we assess which of the? We haven't even talked about super intelligence yet, or asteroids, or you know, other yeah. small tail, you know, high damage risks out there in the world, like. How like in each one of these things requires a you know a Apollo program. So it's just like how do we dump all of the energy into these things fast enough to address any of them? Yeah, uh, yeah. That I know some uh, colleagues have mentioned the, the potential wisdom of setting up some kind of Manhattan Project for AI, mm-hmm. and that seems judicious to me. That seems good. Uh, I think we need that because I do worry greatly. You know, climate change is, as I mentioned before, it's kind of the slow motion ongoing event. You know, look around the world right now. This is what a major mass extinction event looks like. Uh, You can barely see it, but it's happening. AI, you know, is is more of a a step risk. 
mm-hmm. it seems like there's going to be this transition, you know, this inflection point um, where, uh, uh, you know, th- or, you know, there's going to be this period. Uh, yeah. Our, our patrons be... will be very familiar because we've been covering Bostrom's okay. super intelligence in the, okay, great. In the bonus great, content. Great. So, um, yeah. Do you feel like, for example, do you feel like we're not going to solve the alignment problem? One one thesis that I've been advancing is that like we're just going to run headlong into super intelligent AIs without solving the alignment problem. And I'm I'm curious if you feel like we are mo- making any progress towards either some sort of control for the super intelligence or some sort of ethical framework that we can impart to them functionally. I am pretty pessimistic. Um, mm-hmm. I think th- there are two reasons. One has to do with uh, human incompetence, mm-hmm. um, even among the the brightest individuals, uh, some of this might be the result of institutional forces. Uh, you know, for example, organizations need to make money, mm-hmm. so it's you know th- there just is this pressure to uh, to be the first. Even the organizations that have declared that they. Uh, you know they don't they're not in this for the profit they just want to benefit humanity uh there's been some recent uh, discussion about how they've you know they're struggling to get money and constant and that's affecting their actual the quality of their research mm. so i do i worry about that on the one hand on the other hand just the nature of the the control problem or value alignment problem seems to it seems to be the case that we may need to have certain uh, what might be, best be described as perennial philosophical issues solved, like right. what are our values? <laughs> what are the right. right? You know, what's the right the ethical hard theory? problems? <laughs> yes. Yeah, these really, really deep problems that you know, very, very smart people since Plato or you know the pre-Socratics um, have been contemplating, and have not. You know, maybe we've made some progress, but it's not clear we're making forward-looking progress as opposed to just backward-looking progress. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, and I'm I'm a bit sympathetic with um, this really interesting idea that was developed. I think I think it was initially proposed by it might have the term might have come initially from Noam Chomsky, uh, mm-hmm. cognitive closure, mm-hmm. and then it was developed by uh, a now somewhat disgraced philosopher, Colin McGinn, um, due to some sexual harassment uh, mm-hmm. uh, complaints. Standard. Unfortunately, yeah, I know. I really like his work too. So it's. Very I understand. I teach the Chinese room, and every time I have to explain why Cyril's a fucker. Yeah. <laughs> what is the obsession with? You know, there, there's like you know the China brain, the Chinese room. Yeah, um, I know. There's there's a weird <laughs> write a whole fetishism paper about it. I'm sure. Yes, indeed. Um, so yeah, just this notion of cognitive closure that uh, um, you know our brains have these. Uh, concept generating mechanisms that were selected for by nature uh, you know over time and um you know the the the, these mechanisms are limited in nature and limited in their uh, possible production of of, Mm -hmm. uh, concepts so that's important because you know concepts are little mentalistic representations of the external world so if you don't have a concept generating mechanism to generate a concept that corresponds to some feature of reality then you're not going to be able to represent that feature of reality and therefore understand it. Right. So, you know, and his particular thesis, um, which is sometimes called new mysterianism, uh, which is kind of a fun term, uh, but I think is actually a term of abuse. But his particular uh, claim is that most of philosophy consists of questions that we can ask but cannot, in principle, 
under, uh, answer because to answer them, we need to be able to generate concepts that we can't generate. Yeah, I'm sympathetic um, to that, actually, and I identify as a mystagogue, and I'm totally fine with it. We're taking it back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so therefore, if the, if in order to solve the value alignment problem, Mm-hmm. We need to be able to solve to, to solve certain uh, philosophical conundrums, but if those philosophical conundrums are insoluble, in principle, then we're in pretty bad situation. Right. It goes so, back to what you were saying at the beginning about particularism—that like, it, you know, we can't give the AIs a general framework for solving ethics because there is no general framework for solving ethics. The best maybe we can do is raise a um machine learning ai where we try to teach it to be virtuous and we hope that it does what we want it to and then whatever happens happens that's a great connection yeah it it could very well be the case that the the search for um like maybe one reason these perennial philosophical issues have been unsolved is because they're just malformed questions you know we're looking for treating ethics like science Mm -hmm. um or you know uh Elizabeth Anscombe, you know, famously had this 1959 article um, <clears throat> pushing back against the, you know, de- deontol- the, the generalist uh, views that came out of the Enlightenment, in particular, um, like deontology, Kantianism, uh, and utilitarianism, right. and you know, basically arguing that these were infected by religious thinking, mm-hmm. you know, because in religion you have laws. You have rules that are just, you know, maybe absolute uh, are categorical. You can't uh, violate them them under any uh, circumstances, and that we really need to get rid of uh, to jettison this particular way of looking at ethics and embrace a more particularist, uh, virtue based um, uh, mode of ethical theorizing. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's the case, and maybe you know the right ethics is uh, is virtue ethical, and you know. Who knows exactly how to program that into, uh, you know, a machine. I feel really, I just, I'll say, I feel really bad for the philosopher who gets tapped to be Aristotle to the AI's Alexander the Great, because that is, <laughs> that is a shit job right there. Um, good <laughs> luck. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're getting, we're running short on time here, but I wanted to ask. Let me, let me wrap up with one final question. Sure. Um, you know, we've talking about this a lot. We've taken plenty of pot shots at humanity. So let me ask you: Do you <laughs> feel like it's a bad thing if humans went extinct? That's a really great question. Um, I I am not concerned with uh, all of this future potential value uh, because okay. I reject the utilitarian view that you know people don't matter intrinsically they only matter instrumentally we're just containers for value and uh we should go forth and multiply that because you know from the point of view of the universe the more value that comes to exist the better mm-hmm. and i actually find that to be a pretty dangerous uh way particularly when combined with you know uh, it, the standard view in existential risk studies is deeply utopian uh, or influenced, deeply influenced by u- techno-utopian visions, and then by this utilitarian um, ethical framework. Very long-term, and, I want to add. That was something I didn't get a chance to ask you about, but um, I, I know that you've yeah. been critical of like the long-termism versus the global current um, concern methods of effective altruism. Yeah, so basically it's, you know, like on Bostrom's view, the death of somebody is no more or less... Uh, if you bracket the 
individuals who might be affected by the death. You know, they've lost mm -hmm. a loved one or something. But if you just, so if you bracket that, the death of, of a human being is no better, or is, it has the exact same moral status as a possible human being not being born. And mm -hmm. so you've got, you've got, you know, this potential infinitude of possible people who are currently unborn. They could come to exist, a huge number, astronomical number could come to exist in the future. Since they, since them coming into existence matters just as much as people who are currently alive perishing, mm -hmm. since there are so many more of them, we should value their creation more than saving people today. So saving people today matters uh, simply instrumentally, to use that word again, because saving people today is how we realize all of these future people who are living mm -hmm. in computer simulations and, you know, are just absolutely crowding our future light cone. And so this minimizes the importance um, of actual living, you know, breathing human beings uh, today and gives a lot of, you know, sort of affluent, highly privileged people in the West yet another excuse to uh, not care so much about the global South. Because, right. you know, there's all this astronomical value, 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 value that exists, you know, could come to exist in the future. And that's what really matters morally, not the suffering of, uh, in, relatively speaking, not the suffering of individuals um, in Africa or India or wherever. Yeah, so let me, let me put um, that in concrete terms. So you would choose yeah. to address climate change, knowing that climate change is not going to kill off the human species entirely, but it's going to cause a bunch of suffering to the people in the global south, rather than put money towards, you know, protecting us from the big sky nugget that's going to kill absolutely all of us, but it's going to do so at, you know, very, very low percent chance that it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, that that's right. So um, maybe, maybe another way to put it is, like, you can imagine one scenario where Earth perishes in an instant. Mm -hmm. for, for whatever reason we'll just you could say it's it's anthropogenic or you know it's there's a particle accelerator or something that somebody's got to run a highway through the um, universe i understand exactly right right, right. yes yeah. sorry about that but <laughs> there's an intergalactic <laughs> highway here um so earth is just destroyed uh in an instant so nobody suffers mm -hmm. uh as opposed to so th so then compare that with you know climate change where uh let's say a billion people die over you know the next uh um century mm -hmm. and so, so which of those, uh, well, uh, so may maybe the, the, what I'm gesturing at is basically that there are utilitarians who would look at that first scenario mm -hmm. and say that is by far the worst um, uh, outcome possible. Whereas the second one where like lots of people suffer, um, that is not such a big deal. Basically, I'm gesturing at, you know, Derek Parfit's famous yeah. thought experiment where he says the difference between 99% and 100% of people dying out is just so much greater than the difference between 99% dying out and um, peace. Because mm -hmm. the former forecloses, you know, the possible realization of all sorts of future goods. Right. And um, my view is the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. um, and it scares me to think that there may be some people out there who, after a catastrophe, would think, whew, only 99% of people died <laughs> you know because now we can you know we can persist and uh or you know people who would who would choose um they're looking at the glass one percent full that's pretty good yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no i i i think once we're once mm -hmm. we're gone we're gone and uh i do think that would be a shame but i'm much more concerned about uh the 99 percent 
Uh, I mean, I'm one percent more concerned about hundred percent coming out. Cool. I, I'm yeah. I'm sympathetic to that position. I I also <laughs> do value sort of the well. So, I mean, there are things that I think are intrinsically valuable that are much more likely to come about if the species survives. So in, mm-hmm. I think there is value in the preservation of the species in that kind of way. But I think mm-hmm. you're right that I place a higher value on the well-being of current living entities rather than the potential good that could be created in the future by potential future entities. Um, yeah. So, okay. So uh, I, I just, yeah. I find it to be this, this kind of, frankly, kind of religious worshiping of value. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, value, uh, you know, if you're hedonist value is going to be, uh, pleasure, um, you know, and it, my sense is that, you know, I mean, there's also, you know, desire satisfactionist views, um, but from the total utilitarian v- perspective of, you know, the universal gaze, a universe mm-hmm. that's just absolutely flooded with value is better than one without it's, it's just, it's a, again, people don't matter except instrumentally. And there's something just very weird about this. And this notion that, you know, as Bostrom puts it, uh, to sacrifice, you know, imagine if there were two buttons, you know, if you Mm -hmm. pushed one, you could prevent one billion human beings from dying. Mm -hmm. And another one, you could reduce the chance that we won't reach techno-utopia by, you know, a really just negligible amount. And if if you crunch the numbers, you know, given how much of this astronomical value could come to exist in the future, the expected value of hitting the second button could be orders of magnitude greater than saving 1 billion actual breathing human beings. Yeah. And that's a good way to put to, it. so to me that that's, uh, uh th- this is a reductio mm-hmm. of total utilitarianism. Cause it's, I take it, uh, my intuitions are such that that is a perverse, <laughs> you know, a conclusion, uh, of total utilitarianism. The opposite should be true. You should save the one billion living, breathing humans. As a so basic, another way to put it is: I care about actual people rather than imaginary people. Yep, I (laughs) totally understand, and I I could go on bashing total utilitarianism forever, but we're um, we're running a little short on time, so I want to get you into our lightning round. Okay, um, before we get out of here. So, for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me if those things are real or not real. Those are your okay. two options. You cannot hedge during the process. What does can... real mean? I'm sorry, hedging oh, there's, already. There's, there's no definition. <laughs> there's no defining what the word real means. So which is okay. a benefit and a curse. It means that you can say you meant whatever you meant afterwards, later, on anything. But uh, okay. you can't you can't hedge in the meantime. So are you okay, ready? Okay, great. This, I, I, did, I think so. <laughs> I don't have a choice. Let's go. <laughs> Good. So do you believe that anything is real? Yes. Okay. So let's find out what's real. Do you believe okay. that the external world is real? Yes. Okay. Colors? Yeah. Um, yes. Phenomenal consciousness? Yes. <laughs> Free will? <laughs> yes, but all of there's like nope, nope, hours nope, nope, of nope, qualifications. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> Selves? Mm, yes. Genders? Um, yes. Races? Um, no. (laughs) It depends. (laughs) Um, species, yes. Okay, morality? 
Um, no. Rights? <laughs> I want to say yes, but I just said no. <laughs> um, let's go with yes. Let's just. Yeah. Okay. I am great. very, very knowledge. unhappy with how this is going so far. <laughs> I know it's a great game. Knowledge. This is this is terrible. Um. I uh, yes. Okay. Gods. Or God, no. if you prefer. <laughs> no. Uh, society. Yes. Numbers. Oh, God. Uh, yes. Fictional characters. No. Holes, as in a hole in the ground. Um, yes. Chairs. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh man, this is brutal. I mean, yes, cheers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For Sandwiches. sure. Sandwiches. Ooh, what are you gonna ask me after sandwiches? That makes me nervous. Um, yes. Science. Yes. Natural laws. Yeah. Beauty. No. Causality. Um, let's see. I'm going to say yes. Because and, I don't have two hours. And yeah. finally, dharmas. What's the last one? Dharmas, as in the little monads. Since you're going to Leibniz's school, we could use monads here in this particular. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no, okay. no. No, okay, no. Okay, you have survived. No, what a question. <laughs> How do you feel? Um, just really unhappy. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty standard. I like to end my uh, interviews with my guests being as miserable as possible. It's, it's called Embrace the Void for a reason. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Love it. That which was, one was, which was, one was the fun. worst Genuinely. for you? Which one was the the one where things um, got, just got really bad for you? I mean, you things you? like gender, that needs, you know, something can be a social construct and, and be uh -huh. real. You know, uh -huh. Someone could make that argument. And I don't know, science, I'm not quite sure what uh, science, uh, what it means to say science is real. It's, it's a, there's an institution, there's also uh, methodology, both of those uh -huh. are... You'll be getting some emails from our scientific anti-realists, don't you worry, they'll let you know. Oh, well, I mean, it, I, I'm sympathetic with anti-realism. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you didn't ask me about scientific realism. I showed science was real. <laughs> well, the, I mean, you could be talking about the institution. Okay, you could okay. talk we about. Can't, we can't do a whole other hour at all. <laughs> it's too much. It's no, fun. But that, it's that great. was good fun. That yes. was great fun. Well, thank yeah. you so much for for coming on, Phil. This has been a really great time. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your work? Uh, so I have a website uh, which is xriskology. Uh, riskology, as if it's a um, discipline, and then the word the the letter X before it. Um, that's .com. And then I'm on Twitter with the handle Xriskology. Great. And your book's uh, most recent one was what again? Uh, Morality, Foresight, and Human Flourishing, an Introduction to Existential Risk. Um, and that's on Amazon. Sweet. I mean, we're a big cult when it comes to flourishing, so you can always pick up some some people okay. by drop, dropping the F-bomb around here. Um, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Um, good luck with your surviving and maybe making it to Germany. Fingers crossed for you. Yeah, thanks a lot. I, it was fun to embrace the void with you. So this is great. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care.
thanks again to all our listeners and especially to our patrons who make the show possible. I want to give a shout out to two new patrons. One is the Tea for Two podcast and another is a top tier $40 a month patron who has chosen to remain anonymous, which means we can cross backed by dark money off our cult bingo card. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And as always, I must thank our top tier patrons, our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Volunteer this summer. Learn more at campquest.org. Certainly got your money's worth on that one this week. Uh, Chad T and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thanks to our forever and eternity top patron, Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you are an eccentric billionaire or if you notice just a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. But most importantly, remember... You are the void, and the void is you. 